1: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop.
2: Uh, Why did you write this book and why now? Oh, gosh.
3: Um, Well, you say why now. I mean, it's taken nine years, so (laughs) why nine years ago? (laughs) Um, Well, I wrote the book because uh, I wrote a book which came out nine years ago um, about council estates in Britain and uh, I felt there was a lot of kind of unfinished business about mm-hmm. class in, in that book that I really really wanted to sort of explore further and write about and you know as I was writing that book a sort of theme sort of developed and became more sort of salient about the idea not only that class is kind of physically built into the landscape through through housing through physically disin- distinguishable forms of housing but, but also that I felt when I was growing up, I grew up on a very large peripheral estate outside Birmingham, and I, I kind of felt as though it almost had its own set of psychological walls that I'd taken in, not just not just the walls of the you know the, 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 the estate itself, and um, this idea of the wall in the head, which I nicked from which I nicked from Germany after after the Berlin Wall came down, there was this phrase called Demauer in Kopf which is the wall wall in the head about the way people had sort of inter- people in the East had been perceived to have internalised a sense of the Berlin Wall still existing even after it had gone, even after it had come down. And, and this idea of the wall in the head was something that when, when estates came out, people kept coming to me afterwards and saying, that was the best bit in the book, you know, not the stuff about council housing, the kind of the psychological bit was, was, was you know, the bit that they'd responded to the most. And that was the bit I actually enjoyed writing about mm-hmm. most, really. You know, I'd been through this kind of slightly sort of weird process, of or process that I'd felt to be weird of of social mobility and i just
2: wanted to look at that in more detail Mm. i think we have sort of a similar sort of background i came both from like working class families Mm. went to university which was i suppose a kind of clincher in terms of class yeah and then into journalism and writing very very middle class field yeah at what sort of points did you realize that you were kind of shifting class etc i mean i think i remember for me one thing that has really stood out is when i first went to university on the first day they had a drinks reception for the scholarship kids. And I got chatting to one of my... And they brought in the professors and scholarship kids to try and break down barriers, prove they weren't terrifying. And this professor was chatting to me and he said, um, word of advice. And I thought, great, love advice. He was like, lose the accent if you want to get anywhere. And I didn't think anything of it at the time. I I was just embarrassed. And (gasps) I completely lost the accent. I don't sound Welsh at all now.
3: What a thing to say.
2: But... I remember that, but also another time I was at um, The Guardian and uh, I spoke to an editor and I said, oh, I think there's a typo here. Um, Somebody's written staffs with an S on the end as a plural and he didn't, and he said, I turned to sand and it went on and on and on and then he suddenly said to me, oh,
1: staffs.
2: As if. You just couldn't understand flat vowels at all. And it was just small bits like that yeah. every now and then, like, jar you back and remind you that you aren't quite there. Do yeah. you have any, what sort of things did you have on your journey that...
3: Oh, crumbs. Wow. That's amazing. So, sorry, I'm, I'm taking about you. You got a scholarship. Now, you yes. see, we're different ages. You see, I'm 40. Mm. We didn't have scholarships. We still had grants. <laughs> And I was the tail end of the grants. Mm -hmm. So they wouldn't have invited us to a special party to make you feel different. Because, you know, we weren't made to feel different because we all got grants. I mean, that's the thing. But anyway, the the, the, the sort of the the turning point for me where everything changed and I I had this massive culture shock and it's essentially why I've written the book is I went from, I went to primary school and secondary school on the estate where I grew up. Mm -hmm. So it was a completely sort of hermetic estate based experience and nobody, certainly nobody from our primary school went to our primary school who wasn't from the estate and I, uh, from our secondary school there were a few people who were, off, who were from, from elsewhere who went uh, but only a very few they tended to just think of our schools as just a complete shithole basically and we're always trying to find a way to, to not go to our school. But, but anyway, so, so I went to, to school um, and, you know, in those days there were sort of about 10, of us out of, uh, 10 or 12 of us out of 120 who got five GCSEs. And there were only about three or four of us to go to the sixth form college on the other side of the borough. And so to go from a completely working-class environment to a completely middle-class environment, because it's an extremely high-achieving sixth-form um, college in Solly Hall, you know, in the affluent part of Solly Hall, and to go for it from one to the other, you know, without kind of any warning that it would be particularly mm. different, uh, apart from one sort of small chat with my secondary school, one of my secondary school teachers who said, you know, you do realise that everybody who's gone there has got their five GCSEs, don't you? I said, oh, yeah, well, that's why we're all going, you know. Um, and to go there and to realise that that was kind of was going to be the last of the last of my problems was 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 the culture shock because I went there and thought that it would be a level playing field, you know, that 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 this was meritocracy in action, you know. Got to the sixth form college, yes, you know, I'm going to get me A levels, go to university, reach nirvana, and it was it was. So not like that. It was unbelievable, and it was things like—I mean, it was sort of basic, the basic stuff of middle-class social life that I'd never been exposed to. So it was things like going round to people's houses. I mean, I mean, when I was a, when I was a kid, we used to play in the street, but we never really went round to people's houses because people's houses were very private, and people felt quite odd about you know. There was nothing like sleepovers or anything like that. And when I went to sixth form, everyone was like, "Oh yeah, come round to our house," and you you go round and. There'd be, like, seven 16-year-olds in, in somebody's massive kitchen all making themselves cups of tea and bacon sandwiches, you know, and the mums and dads were like, whoa, you know, this is fine, this is great, and then you'd all go up to this massive attic and you'd sit up playing indie records till three o'clock in the morning and they was just, <laughs> just like, bloody hell, what is this? And, of course, it was what I'd, what I'd always dreamed of because mm. when I went to the Sixth One College, I made friends very, very quickly because people weren't, you know, we had sort of similar music tastes and people sort of weren't phased by the fact that I was a bit odd and, and you know, it, it was fantastic from that point of view because I, I, I couldn't really make friends when I was at school and so it was great from that point of view but, but, the, but the idea, that, the idea that, that everybody did something in such a completely different way that I'd never been exposed to just completely sort of did me in, really.
2: I mean, one thing I really liked about the book was you talked a lot about the kind of psychological violence of, like, moving class. Mm. And both the sense of loss and alienation, but also not quite fitting in the new class. I mean, there's one line towards the end of the book where you say, it's only in the recent past I've been able to visit the place I came from, the place that was once my home, without believing it to be some sort of vortex that had to be outrun and outwitted. Mm. Um, I mean, how do you square both feeling affection for where you come, where you come from, but also... Feeling as though it, it, it was a trap to escape, rather than a, a kind of viable life for anyone.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean that—that's the trickiest thing because you know, I mean, I've been getting sort of various reviews of, about the book, and you know that you know some of the reviews said, "Ah, oh, you know, you know, she's contemptuous of the place she came from, and uh, contemptuous of the people who live there, and all this kind of stuff." And, and what I just wanted to get across in the book was, it's complicated. And it's it, it's it's not easy, and it's very emotionally sort of you know sort of taxing, really. But but I have always continued. I've, I've never stopped visiting where I grew up because it's where well my dad doesn't live there anymore, but my mom still lives there. My son goes and stays with my mom every every other week. I've always gone there every fortnight. I've I've visited. So I've never lost the connection. But at various times in you know at various times in my adult life, it's it's been you know sort of more difficult than others really and uh, you know I mean having children has made it easier because you take your children to the places where you went to and they're not experiencing it in they're not experiencing it in this sort of complicated sort of classed way they're just liking what they're doing and that 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 makes it a bit easier but um you know I mean it, it has been quite difficult because you know just to think well you know this is where I come from and I feel really deeply connected. To it, but 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 ultimately, I'm really 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 glad to be doing what I'm doing now, and I'm really really glad I left home, and you know,
2: it, it's just such a complicated feeling. Do you think that Britain has become more or less divided in terms of class since maybe 1987? Since
3: 1987. 1987. 1997. Mm. Mm. Um. Well, I think. I think there was quite a lot of airbrushing that that started to happen after ninety-seven. You know, this this notion that you know, because if you remember, uh, John Major, you know, in the early nineties, said, "I'd like to see us move towards a classless society." Now, that's a Tory saying that. And then Labour come into power, and and Blair effectively says, "You know, we're all middle. You know, we we all drink white wine. You know, we're 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 all middle class now." One is stating. <laughs> One is stating a sort of wish and a desire and one is sort of stating something as though it were a fact. Mm -hmm. And it's actually sort of the Blair version that is more airbrushing of the realities of of life for for many people than Major was. Um, I mean, I write in the book about, you know, about the idea of the third way, you know, and Anthony Giddens, you know, the the philosophical architect of the third way, sort of believing that, you know, class differences could as, could kind of wither away in his dream world, you know, and, and that we would sort of all be exposed to this level playing field of sort of endless choices. <coughs> you know, the reality is that, for, for, for many people, is that I think people did start to have more choices in many ways, and I think on one level it's quite liberating to be told that you don't need to regard yourself in this sort of class-ridden way anymore. But but the downside of that, of course, is that is that it, it just... It forces you, it forces you to think, oh, well, I must always be on this upwards trajectory sort of stroke treadmill. Mm. And, um, you know, and and it completely sort of dismisses, you know, dismisses the value of of, of whole sort of aspects of of, of cultural and social life in Britain.
2: It might just be me noticing this, but when I first went to university, I I think I had a lot of residual class shame. I was at my depth. But I also noticed um, two things. One was this kind of slightly ironic fetishization of working class culture where posh kids would, would like say, Oh look at me, I'm going to Greggs, I'm going to Weatherspoons, oh. etc." As it, as it, as if they were on some kind of wild safari yes. and showing just how flavor, yeah. just how down yeah, yeah. with the people they were. That was a real feature of, you know, the light 90s, <laughs> yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah.
2: Um, the 2000s, yeah, this yeah. but also um, every time I spoke to somebody uh they always ask two questions. One, I was at Warwick. Which one did you apply for, meaning Oxford, and Cambridge? So when I said which neither, one? yeah, when I said neither, they confused about that. Yeah. And then, and then they they say where did you school as a verb, <laughs> meaning, <laughs> which I quickly learned meant you know quick, catching up on these kind of upper middle class codes meant Yay. which private school did you go to? Yay. And then you say I went to Hartridge Comp. And every every time you said that to somebody, they immediately kind of bridled, and couldn't cope with the fact that I was speaking to a working-class person and then started talking about how they had working-class roots. You know, a great-grandfather who once worked down a mine.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and, it, and it's this strange kind of... I, I suppose it's this kind of fetishisation of working-class culture from a position of privilege. Yeah,
0: yeah,
2: yeah, um, yeah. And I just saw that as more and more common, and I see it over and over again now. I see kind of, like, highfalutin think-pieces about um, the popularity of Greggs oh. from people who went to Oxford and Eton and... Um,
4: yeah.
2: I mean, why do you think that is?
4: Well, I, th- I
3: think it's just a sort of, you know, I guess a sort of desperate desire to retain, or not retain, or to sort of feel some connection mm. with, you know, you know, with, with, with a wider culture, you know, I mean... It, it's one of those things, it's, it's appropriation, essentially, isn't it? Because, you know, I mean, I mean, I worked at Greggs for two years, and, in fact, it was longer than two, for, for, for two or three years, anyway, before I went to university. And uh, this was certainly before the days of sort of going to Greg's. ironically. Um, <laughs> I mean, does that happen? But anyway, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, that, that idea that, you know, I mean, Warwick... I think you've revealed Warwick particularly to be a very elite institution in that, in, in that sense. And I think my experience was more, because I went to Queen Mary and Westfield College in London, my experience was more, um, most of the kids that I knew had gone to grammar schools, and I thought grammar schools had been abolished. I didn't realise grammar schools still existed. And so people felt they'd gone to state school, but they hadn't really. You know, it wasn't. You know, it wasn't really um, a state school. But, but yes, I mean that that sort of fetishisation of of what are regarded to be sort of working class symbols. It's 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 not new, is it? You mm. know, I mean, it's it's that thing about sort of just the sort of the search and the striving for some sort of badge of authenticity, mm. and and also, I mean. You know, I mean, I think you do sort of have to acknowledge that, you know, that a majority of people in, in, in Britain do, if you go back two generations, do have some
2: sorts of roots in the working class, but it can become removed very, very rapidly. So aside from people slumming it in Aldi or doing a George Orwell in Greggs, <laughs> um, do, do you think we're going backwards in terms of actual uh, acceptance of class? I mean, uh, I'm thinking of the mayoral campaign, which, which, you know, is finishing today. Uh, We had a wonderful photo of George Osborne and... um, No, sorry, uh, Boris Johnson, David Cameron and Zach Goldsmith all together, which are, you know, two... Like, three Etonians, two of which went to uh, Oxford afterwards. One went on a long gap year. (laughs) Um, But I just... I think my favourite point of the mayoral campaign was when Mm. Boris and Zach went to a pub. Zach Goldsmith was drinking a pint and... uh,
3: did you know
2: what to do? No, he didn't. Right, right. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to demonstrate. So um, he's clearly never held one before because he held it like this
4: <laughs>
2: and, just, and was widely mocked for not knowing how to drink a pipe. But that's, you know, I mean, these are the people who are in power now. If you look yeah. at the cabinet, it's stuffed full of Etonians and for some reason it's, it seems a lot more acceptable to make a documentary about people on benefits yeah. mocking them, or yeah. lots of reality TV shows about the working class where you mock them, but if you yeah. ever say, you know, fuck off back to eating to somebody yeah. that's equivalent to racism for, for these people
3: Yeah um, Well, I mean, I think the, the, the way it seemed, I mean I've, I've, you know, to, to, to do the, the research, or you know, it doesn't really feel like research, because I'm just sort of completely obsessed with the subject anyway, but in reading up um, for this book I read so much about the, sort of the the way the the really really subtle and quite intangible ways in which privilege is hoarded and becomes concentrated over time, and it's that sort of whole you know that theres there's quite a bit of there's quite a bit of sort of commentary about 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 class being sort of purely economic at the moment and therefore if you're not part of that 1% elite, then you are automatically working class, and I think that's gubbins, really. You know, there's so much sort of hoarding, not just of of sort of economic capital, but just of that secret knowledge, you know, the secret knowledge of social and cultural capital. You don't actually have to be privately educated to acquire that kind of... or to to have it in the first place, actually. There is a sort of... in, In Britain, there is sort of quite a sort of enlarged middle class you know that's sort of come to being in the last two you know in the last sort of two two generations really because a lot of because of a lot of the the benefits of the post-war settlement you know people having secure lives for the first time and a lot of people sort of being able to sort of um, you know attain professional jobs for the first time there is this enlarged uh, middle class and it, and it has come to sort of dominate the the wider voice but with that comes a kind of denial of that privilege mm. and you know I think it is significant it is significant that the cabinet is stuffed full of Newtonians but I don't think it's the whole story. Mm. The, I think we also have to look at the role of relative privilege in sort of overlooking in you know in, 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 the, in the way the media and, and, and political debate overlooks working class realities. Mm. I
2: suppose picking up on one of, one of your points there um I've noticed a very, very big tendency, especially when it comes to issues like housing, etc., to claim that inequality isn't really a thing anymore, especially not in terms of class. And the only real inequality that exists is intergenerational injustice. Uh, So the fact that the young as a group have been screwed over and every single person over 40 is a baby boomer. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I think this is crap because nobody in my family has ever owned a house yeah. and no, 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 no. they've always been in dire economic straits, yeah. very little opportunity for social mobility, yeah. I'm like an outlier and ran off, yeah. so I never thought I was going to own a house because I'm working class
3: yeah, yeah, and yeah,
2: yeah. to me it yeah. just seems like a small group of middle class people are a little bit disgruntled and yeah. would rather associate themselves with the working class. Of course. And
3: of course, because it, it's quite sexy to do mm. that, you know. I mean, it's it's sexy to it's sexy to look as though and to feel as though you're going to be permanently disadvantaged because it makes you look quite bohemian, doesn't it? Mm. You know, I mean, I remember not like you know, say for like five years after I graduated, and this is in very different circumstances. You know, this was still at a time when we didn't pay, or you know, we paid a very small amount to go to university, and it wasn't the time of sort of, you know twenty or thirty thousand pounds debts when you graduated. It a time when, you know, you graduated with I don't know, three, oh, I think I had about two and a half thousand pounds of debt when I when I graduated. But anyway. Oh, God. Uh, oh no, sorry, I'm not rubbing it in. Um, it and and I had friends who came from very secure, stable, middle class backgrounds and not not sort of super tough backgrounds, but you know, relative relative privilege who said, oh, God, it's terrible, I'm going to be poor all my life, you know. Oh, I'm just quite, qual- I'm, I'm a newly qualified teacher, it, it's terrible, I'm never going to own my own house, it's always going to be awful. And, and I, rem- I remember somebody saying, you know, I'm going to be poor all my life, and I, and I just sort of looked at them and said, well, I didn't say a word, actually, I just went like this, you know. It was kind of like, you mark my words by the time you're about 33, shall we say. By the time you're about 33 you will own your own house, your income will roughly approximate your age, uh, you may spend a few years sort of pootling around, working in shops and so on, thinking, you know, this is it, this is it for the rest of my life. Because I remember actually in the early 90s reading um, Douglas Copeland's, mm. was it, it was Generation X and the, 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 whatever book it was about jobs. There was this whole thing in the early 90s about McJobs, you know, that, that, that young middle-class people in the Western world, all they had to look forward to was McJobs, you know, working in McDonald's, working in Starbucks and so on, and all this kind of stuff. And I think you can pretty much guarantee that all the people who were working in the McJobs in the early 90s are now in, you know, very nice jobs. And, you know, this was sort of, uh, you know, when we graduated, this was, you know, very late 90s, early 2000s, and... Uh, you know, I was kind of like, you know, internally, I was saying, you mark my words, you're, you know, you will have a much more stable life within a few years. And I'm not saying that I won't also have that stable life, but it will come from mm. quite a different sort of set of feelings and I will feel extraordinary lucky to have achieved that. And when you get it, it will be kind of like, oh, I didn't really notice that happening kind of thing. Mm, yeah. And that, that is, I suppose that isn't, you know, that is one way of looking at inequality,
2: really. Mm. I was sent by my paper recently back to Wales. My editor came over and said don't you come from Newport? I said yes. She said can you go recover this story and it was a story about how Oxfam had basically decided to uh, do some programs in some of the most deprived places in the UK. Yeah. So they'd gone to the estate I grew up on because it was unbelievably poor and I had to go along and write about it and going back was an extraordinarily tough experience and when I arrived I Felt really uneasy. I felt out of place. I couldn't stop thinking about how different I'd been in the ten years since I left. Right. Um, yeah. And everybody, nobody can quite believe that you come from there. No. I, I don't sound yeah. like it anymore. That's I don't right. look like it. You're not they, from
3: round here, are you? Yeah. yeah. Yep. And yeah, also, yeah, yeah. I,
2: live, I live in that London. Yeah. and I write for a newspaper that they don't even stock in the shops in, you know... might not have heard of as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went back once and I asked for The Guardian. Somebody said, why? I said, oh, I work there and I want to read it, and he just said, oh, I'm so sorry. So like, <laughs> never heard of it, assumed nobody bought it, it was fine. Yeah. And I got quite upset, and, I mean, everybody was kind of, like, slightly in awe of me, and I felt uncomfortable about that, and then I realised afterwards that what had actually upset me was thinking about all the people I've been at school with who were as clever as me or as or worked as hard as me yep. who hadn't actually got anywhere. Yeah. And I always found that returning home just reminded you of all of that wasted potential yeah. that you, as an outlier, yeah. have accidentally stumbled upon. You yeah. Know, yeah, and, yeah, and then yeah, you yeah. meet people who aren't as smart, didn't try as hard, but come from an okay background yeah. and don't ever actually experience how precarious things are for some yeah. people. Yeah 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 yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean... How do you how do you find going back now?
3: Um, Do you still
2: see people from school or
5: no?
3: No, no, I don't. Uh, I mean, like I say, I was a real, I was really spotty. I was really spotty at school, and I never sort of maintained relationships after I left school because I wasn't close enough friends with anybody I was at school with. And all the friends that I have from Birmingham are all ones that I met at sixth form college, but. I mean, it's that thing of you're not from round here, are you? And you know, my husband does exactly the same thing. My husband's from Birkenhead, um, in, in in the northwest, and and he wears he wears specs, you know, and and you know, wearing when he goes to the shop and he wears specs, it's kind of he, he feels really self conscious about the fact that he wears specs, you know, and. Um, He's a, and that he's not an old person, that's right. If you're an old person and wear specs, that's all right. <laughs> but he kind of, you know, marks him out as, as, as bookish. And it's, it's that kind of thing, you're not from around here, are you? Well, actually, I am, you know. And, um, I mean, had you been back very much in the interim?
2: Barely at all. And what I found right, interesting was when right. I talked to um, <coughs> other friends from similar backgrounds, very, very few of them go home. A lot of them don't have any contact with their family whatsoever. Oh, um, right. I don't have any contact with my family and part of that is me going away to London but also when I did go back it became very, very difficult yeah. to talk to them oh. about shared interests because there weren't any and you just felt like a kind of cuckoo that had arrived in his necks yeah. like, later on. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
2: I mean, there's liney, line in your book where you say governments of every stripe encourage individuals to move upwards, change their class, trade up while never acknowledging the emotional cost of doing so. yeah. I mean, whenever people talk about social mobility, it only ever goes one way. Exactly. And it's all right to be socially immobile as long as yeah. you're middle class. Yeah. 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 Do you think we'll ever get to a point where people realise that if they do want widespread social mobility and it is you know, <coughs> um, something that people should aspire to, actually some middle class kids are going to have to go down a road?
3: Oh! Well, this is it. I don't think I don't think it's necessarily a sort of zero-sum game, you know. I mean, they're, they're, I mean, it's a massive argument, isn't it? That that thing that in order for working-class kids to be socially mobile, you have to let you have to let middle-class kids drop down. But I I, I see some so much that way. I do actually think that I do think that there's room for everybody because, you know, people who who are you know from pre-existing middle-class backgrounds kind of can and do find ways to maintain their levels of and... Social- cultural capital and you know in sort of confined ways to sort of make a living you know off off the back of that Mm -hmm. you know however sort of you know however sort of moderate a living that is I think the other thing is is that it it sort of it it does sort of suggest that there sort of continually has to be this process only by where you know I, I had a review of my book last week you know from somebody who you wouldn't expect using this phrase using the phrase bright working class kids Oh. Why should it only be bright working class kids who make it to university? Why, you know, it's kind of endless, endless numbers, endless numbers of uh, middle class kids from, from, you know, various, I mean, I was going to say vary, varying levels of brightness all make it to university, mm. but my underlying assumption is that nobody really is thick. Nobody is thick, really. Everybody has that capability. And the idea that you continually have this process of creaming off. You know, also suggests that you know that you have to sort of keep it as a gatekeeping process. And I think if you sort of suggest that sort of some middle class people have to sort of start falling down in order for some people to move up, suggests that it it has to sort of remain a gatekeeping process. Whereas if everybody is educated, if everybody is really well educated, they can find their way towards living a you know living living a, a life that's sort
2: of good for themselves. You know. Do you think most people believe we live in a meritocracy?
3: I know quite a few, I know quite a few people who work in universities now, and I know people who work in sociology departments and history departments and English departments and, and so on, you know, through <laughs> you know, through my own sort of social mobility process. And um, some of them, several of them say that, that at the beginning of a new term, when they get their new intake of undergraduates, they say Do you think, they say to their undergraduates, do you think we live in a classless society now? And apparently everybody, or just about everybody, says, oh yeah, 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 oh class doesn't matter anymore. I mean, you know, we all got here on our own merits. You know, and so that suggests to me that people do believe it's a meritocracy. But then when, especially when people are doing sociology and criminology, they're very, very, very quickly disabused of that notion. You know, and this just this isn't just at top universities. You know, I mean, I'm a, so I'm a visiting fellow at John Moores University, which is um, a, um, an, a you know a post 92 university in Liverpool, and you know, its it, it student intake is a lot less privileged than than a Russell.
1: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers, and if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.
3: I think maybe often because they themselves are outliers mm. may get there and think, well, you know, I got here on my own mer- merits. Therefore, it is a meritocracy.
2: I mean, one thing I notice um, <coughs> quite a lot about outliers and like working class boys done good, right. um, is that often they are the staunchest defenders of um, the system as it is. Like, you know, the, the argument that if I got here off my own off sweat, anybody can, etc. Right. Yeah. Um, how much of that? do you think is to do with kind of willful blindness, or is it more i suppose as a result of the kind of loneliness of moving class
3: I suppose it's somewhat to do with the sort of the, pre, the the desire for preserving a sort of self myth really and I think I think I was definitely subject to that when I was younger, you know sort of i got I got here you know how come. How come other people don't do it? And it's that central difference, isn't it? I think, you know, I was doing a talk at the RSA earlier and somebody asked me, um, you know, do you ever go back and give talks at your old school? And I said, well, you know, my old school got knocked down, it got turned into an academy, you know, but I'll go back to that school. And, you know, there's that sort of difference between sort of saying, I did this, that means you should. And If you don't, there's something wrong with you. And saying... I did this, that means you can too. It's brilliant. You know, it's mm-hmm. not impossible. Yeah. You know, it's that thing, isn't it, about sort of damning somebody because they haven't done precisely what you think they should do and encouraging somebody who hadn't necessarily sort of believed in themselves to the extent that, that, that they, they believe that somebody from their background
2: could actually do, mm. some, you know, something they really, really wanted to do. Finally, why do we get so upset? About what we call our evening meal. <laughs> Can I have a show of hands? Who, who, who calls it dinner? Who calls it tea? And which of you calls it. Ah, and who calls it supper? We only oh. have one supper. Amazing. <laughs> wow. So why, why do we care so much? That's the one question that every time I ask, people go absolutely wild. Well, if I'm at work I and I say I'm popping out for dinner, they say, it's so half past 12. That's
3: the can of worms, isn't it?
2: That's the can of worms. <laughs> You've opened up the class cultural can of worms, haven't you? It's,
3: it's, um, it, it, it just sort of touches the very, very tippity tip of the, the sort of the iceberg of sort of class-based language use and... Um, Signifiers and and things that where you don't realise you've changed until you've already changed. I mean, like I, I I actually start the book saying, I can't remember when I started calling lunch dinner and hang on, no oh. dinner lunch. <laughs> I can't remember when I I can't remember when I started calling dinner lunch and dinner no tea dinner that's right and yeah, tea dinner, but I knew that I did that. I just can't remember when it happened. And, you know, was it, at, was it at sixth form? Was it a university? Was it at some time after that? But that, to me, is that sort of subtle, subtle, subtle psychological process of acculturating yourself to an entirely new environment that you might not necessarily notice happening. But once it's happened, there's no going back. And, that you know, if you start calling TT after that, it, it becomes a self-conscious thing, you know, and you're doing it to kind of retain a link to your proletarian past, but you're never doing it in the unselfconscious way that you would have done as a child.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And, you know, that, that, that says quite a lot to me. And now, dear audience, it's your turn to speak. <laughs> <laughs> we have a Roman mic from our resident poet, John Clegg. So, <laughs> who, uh, we already have some questions.
0: Um... I've got a little, a little theory that it was probably better when people were having to put on things like Mockney accents, because at least it demonstrated a degree of self-consciousness from really posh people (laughs) because it's it's cut glass accents now in East London that are straight out of yeah so but my more serious point is that do you think we need a little bit more class awareness and a little bit more self-consciousness about it because it feels very much at the moment that a a system has been created by certain so-called leaders in the country Mm -hmm. that have got a lot of people who would be upper working lower middle class yeah. to start really looking with contempt at poor people
3: yeah. to suit yeah. their own
0: horrible interests but but without an awareness a class awareness either of people who are poor yeah. or even people who are actually facing their own walls they can't get much further up as well yeah,
3: yeah. so you know sure, like yeah. this
0: cabinet is the worst you can oh, ever yeah. imagine and in I, many ways yeah. like it's yeah. worse than even thatcher's cabinet and it's mm-hmm. more extreme in many ways as mm-hmm. well but But a lot of people don't realise that too. But the awareness isn't there. And I just wonder, uh, that's a tricky thing. You don't want people wandering around going, oh, I'm this because I say this and I do this and I have a group. But but without that group to advocate, then it it feels really horrible at the moment. That's That's right, Yeah.
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, uh, yeah, you take it one yeah. question yeah, at a yeah, time, yeah? time. Well, I I don't think I mean I think that one of the way I mean it's such a subtle it's such a s- subtle but it's such a sort of violent way you know I mean I I you know read a lot of sociology and you know sort of continue to sort of read a lot of sociology to try and sort of educate myself about this process and. Um, the French sociologist uh, Pierre Bourdieu talks about symbolic violence. You know, the symbolic violence of, of the denial of people's sort of realities in, in you know in in a, in a class and the, the realities of their sort of lived experience. And I think one of the ways in which you know the current you know the current setup is particularly symbolically violent is is the kind of the way. Somebody like David Cameron or even, you know, somebody like Prince Harry or somebody can talk in a very demotic way, in a way that two generations ago they wouldn't have had any clue about how to communicate in that demotic way. You know, so, you know, if David Cameron sort of says something like, you ain't no Muslim bruv, you know, it's sort of, you know, ooh, he's, oh, crumbs, you know, he's... He knows how to connect with the people, you know, and that, that's a very, very subtle and evil trick to, to play. And you know, somebody like Prince Harry, you know, and, and he, an extent, child,
2: he had a chaff party, didn't
3: he? Oh, yeah, and, and used all kinds of racist language that he picked up in. Well, maybe he didn't pick it up in the army. Maybe maybe he picked up, picked it up at home. I don't know. <laughs> but you know, it, it's kind of you know that, that sort of that sort of facility. Facility with, um, you know, sort of what they would regard as quite sort of demotic behaviour and demotic language use is just a, an unbelievable confidence trick on, on you know, the sort of the, the, the wider population. You know, it's kind of they're just like you and me. You know, yeah. I mean, of course, there does need to be class consciousness, but um, I think. That's been pervading quite a sort of sort of naked kind of economic way at the moment, and I'm not, absolutely not denying that that a section of society is being, you know, it's been absolutely pummeled economically and relentlessly. Uh, but, but I think we, we just can't afford to ignore those kind of, you know, linguistic and cultural signals as a way, you know, as a way of sort of displaying that, 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 that symbolic violence against people.
2: Uh, thanks. Um, I was just going to ask how important do you think? Um, the the public sector is in I was gonna say the escalator but I'll say conveyor belt of people moving between their classes and moving into middle class. And does the sort of austerity programme spell, you know, the end for this class movement that you've you've discussed and and covered. You know, I'm thinking of the jobs, the the pensions in all of the sectors that were so highly respected, education, healthcare and now they're all sort of demonised and slashed.
3: Yeah. That's a really salient question, that is, uh, because, you know, you were saying, you know, what changed after 97? And, of course, what changed after 97 was a massive investment and a massive creation of public sector jobs, and it created uh, a possibility of social mobility, I would say, for, for hundreds of thousands of people, um, you know, to, to get good, stable jobs and pensions for the first time. And in the northwest where I live, you know, the public sector forms, you know... More than thirty-five percent of the economy, I think. I think at least thirty-five percent of the economy in, uh, you know, in in, in all, all over the North West, I think in in Middlesbrough. I think the public sector is like forty-two percent of the economy or something like that. You know, and um, you know, if if that comes to be denuded, it's it's that source of good jobs. You know, because there was mm. so much talk in the in the you know in the Blair years and in the Labour years about about you know the bloated public sector, and it's like who gives it a toss. You know, people have got. Good jobs people have got you know really really good pensions they've got stability you know they've got a chance to kind of work within the communities that they come from if that's you know and, and that, that, that's what they want to do and you know like actually helping people and you know I mean of course you know it sort of goes without saying that once you get a Tory government it's just that just goes all out the window again you know I mean I was I was given a talk um, yesterday or the, the, the day before, and I, I sort of realised that you know that <clears throat> between the age, of, but that I grew up under the Tories between the age of three and twenty-one. You know that is an entire lifetime, and um, you know I suppose you know the, the fact that Labour got into power, you know, sort of pretty much around my twenty-first birthday. You know, it was kind of like wow, you know, this this is this is the end to all this, you know, hideousness. And you know, of course, I've got so many caveats and reservations, and sort of downright angry feelings about about the legacy of, of the last Labour government because they did pave the way for the current government. But you know, you you know, you just cannot deny that you know the usefulness and the the sort of the the, the the meaning and the intention behind things like the education maintenance allowance and. Um, you know, and ensure start centres, you know, and, sure centers, you know and, and that proper investment. At well, the point where Labour left power in 2010, you know, sort of use of patient satisfaction with the NHS had never, ever been higher since the creation of the NHS, and it's only gone down since then, obviously. So, yeah, I mean, it's... it's a, yeah, the public sector, you know, has been and can be a, f- a fantastic engine of social mobility. In exactly. In Newport, yeah. the two yeah. biggest
2: employers are the uh, Passport Office and the Office of National Statistics, and they're both getting cut.
5: I was just going to say firstly about what your experience was. I had exactly, I grew up in Essex and went to a comprehensive, went as the first one to Exeter University uh, for eight years from my school. Nobody told me that, uh, yes, I was going to constantly be asked, so where did you go? And I was like, "Uh, nowhere. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, that was one thing. But saying that, I I met some fantastic friends there. Yeah. Than, and I would say 90% all went to private public schools yeah. um, so I just one thing I would say is they didn't care where I came from yeah. they actually were embracing and they're lifelong friends to me so it's just one thing that I'd say it's not everyone's bad or anything um, but my question really was about the Northern Powerhouse um, and actually um, it's something the government have launched it's What about, sorry? The Northern um, Powerhouse The Northern Powerhouse oh, right, right, okay. but yeah. just as an interesting yeah. idea but it, it's... Yeah, but it's, it's their idea around social mobility is one of the key factors that they're yeah. kind of pushing as they're yeah. saying that we're going to build some fantastic infrastructure that's going to connect these fantastic cities of the north
0: yeah. and actually yeah. it's
5: going to bring about social mobility and ultimately mm. challenge the class system and the behaviours and the mentality in the area. And I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on that take on it because you've got the Midlands engine coming as well but it's uh. just that kind of... But it's whether you think that actually it's just pie in the sky or...
3: Oh, the Northern Power pa- you know what the Northern Powerhouse means to me it's I live in Liverpool and the Northern Powerhouse means to me getting twenty five year old Thameslink trains shipped up to Liverpool painted purple and told and, oh that's right and, and then and then having plaques on them either, uh, on the side called Northern Powerhouse and being told that we should be grateful for twenty
2: five year old trains. Didn't, you know? the, didn't the train that had the Northern Powerhouse plaque on the side break down <laughs> six times in three months?
3: It always bloody breaks down. <laughs> no, no, I mean, you know, travelling around, travelling around in the northwest, you know, it involves going on 40 year old trains, 40 year old diesel trains. And, you know, when they're replaced, when all the routes are electrified and they're replaced with, you know, overground, you know, an overground style system, you know, that is regulated in the same way as TFL. And that you know is, is is as regular and sort of is as cheap, uh, you know. Th- th- then I will sort of start to believe slightly in the northern powerhouse, but at the moment, I mean, it just um, it's, it's, it's 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 just that thing of a sort of a classic thing of sort of saying something is so, and then sort of trying to make people believe that it is so, and it's you know, and it's just not. And I mean, you know, Manchester has you know Manchester has. has you know, done a sort of massive job on it, on it, on it. You know, off its own back of sort of, you know, becoming the Northern London sort of thing, really. And um, you know, I've got my own reservations about that because you know, I, you know, I love living in Liverpool, and it's a much more livable place to live in if you have the income to enjoy all the great things about it, kind of thing. You know, I mean, if you, you know, if you can't get a job there, then I mean, it's hopeless. But you know, I mean, uh, if but but it it 's that thing about do we all have to compete with the East? Does everybody have to live a version of being in the South East in order to be credible or or, or valuable you know it, you know it just it's just it just seems like another one of those sort of you know yeah we 're telling you something, therefore you know we 're forcing you to believe in it you know
5: um I just wanted to ask you what it is that you mean by when you say the working classes because. I was from quite a working class environment, but by the time I was socially aware, we'd become very middle class. Um, as my dad likes to remind me constantly, that I'm very middle class, but then because it's hard for me to separate the working class values that my parents had, I identify very much as being of, of the working class. So I'm yeah. just wondering what it is you mean by that term, or like what it means to you.
2: Can... Oh. I'll just wait, I'm also talking. What does it mean to be working class? Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it means different things to different people. I've met a lot of people whose parents were head teachers, etc., um, yeah. or have very, very plush jobs in kind of, you know, quite high up in the council, etc. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people who are quite conflicted and can't decide if they're lower middle class or upper middle class, and some of that's like racialized, like somebody who would ordinarily be considered lower middle class, but because of, kind of the experience of race, they felt more, work, more attuned to the working yeah. class. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, think, I think it's easier in the past to say what it was then. I mean, so my grandfather was a minor, so obviously he was working class, and then I came from a family where nobody worked at all. Um, so it was obvious I was working class girls at the very bottom of society. Um, I think most people see it in terms of their kind of local community. So most people in the centre of Newport would identify as working class. But I remember being in school and thinking that uh, my friend Christy uh, was middle class because her dad had a a job in steelworks and her mum worked in Woolworths and she had board games.
3: Ah, Um, right,
2: yeah. And then I went to university and I met people who uh, had been to a very, very posh grammar school but thought they were working class because it was technically a state school,
3: right? Yeah. Um, yeah.
2: So I think I think as as the jobs we do shift, yeah, that shifts as well. I think I think what I see as a big hallmark is a complete precarity. So mm. I I still often feel working class because I know that at any point if something goes wrong, I am destitute. So my middle class friends. Uh, you know, might have the same job as me. And if something completely cocks up, if they become very, very ill, they have a family they can go back to or a family who can bail them out with some money. Whereas my working-class friends are constantly aware of the complete precarity in which they live yeah. and the pre- complete precarity their entire family live in. Right. Um, so I think it's, it's partly to do with culture and uh, what culture you have available to you, what knowledge you have available to you. But increasingly, it's also about precarity. People who are never more than one paycheck away from complete destitution.
3: Mm. Yeah, well,
2: you know, in the words of Jarvis Cocker, if they called their dad, it could stop it all. Yeah. Um, I'd say, being at university and watching people ironically sing Common people that oh, maybe want to Kill. God.
3: Yeah, oh, no, I remember. I remember when, when Common People came out in 1995. If you have that
0: story, <laughs>
3: I think... In, in 1995, when Common People came out, Pulp produced T-shirts that said on the front of them, I'm Common. And I used to, just used to get my back up because the sorts of people that were wearing the T-shirt that said, I'm Common, work, Common.
2: <laughs> oh, this is it. A friend, a friend of mine went to Sheffield University and was very, very excited. Um, he's from South Wales. And he said that on the first uh, night of the disco... They had um, they played common people and he and he said he saw lots of posh kids going, Common people like you <laughs> I called you common.
3: Why? Um, no, well yeah, I mean that 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 possibly is an essence of, of, of mm. being of being working class, Does that record make you cry? do, do limix by the Manic Straight Peaches make you cry? Um, you know. Have you have you a re- have you a reason to walk out of the room when one of those re- when one of those records comes on because you can't actually bear it because they're, they're, they're speaking the truth they're speaking the truth about you but um, but yeah 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 no I mean that, that sort of um, that sort of precarity versus stability is the actual is, is, is the basis on which most social mobility actually takes place. You know, you, you kind of, you know, most, you know, I was, uh, uh, um, you know, I, I read a lot of the work of Mike Savage, who, mm. whose team at the LSE wrote the book about social class in the 21st century. And did the BBC
2: interaction, BBC with?
3: class survey. And, and he noted that, you know, most social mobility is what he would call short range social mobility. So it's from lower middle class into middle middle class or middle middle class into upper middle mm. class, because you already have that basis of economic and sort of you know life stability to 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 build it on sort of thing um but 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 I think sort of class to me as as you said it's that sort of sense of resources and it it absolutely it it is it's largely economic resources but it's absolutely not just economic resources it's it's cultural resources Mm -hmm. it's it's geographical resources it's um just a sense of a sense of uh, of, of, of possibility and um, and um, sort of uh, uh,
2: well uh, of confidence really I guess mm. is what it's confidence in the future yeah yeah can I get this gentleman and then this woman afterwards I think
0: both of you have highlighted the vital importance of education in determining where you're going to get to on the social escalator or whatever and that's obviously the case mm. do you think the present policy, policy of moving towards academisation is going to make a big difference on that score. Absolutely not. Just I could amplify. um, Might lead to fragmentation, might even lead to greater selectivity.
3: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's just completely... It's just completely, you know... It's... it's, it's, You know, it's taking the wrong conclusions from something that's already happened, basically. Uh, You know, I mean... I mean, you're, you're absolutely right about fragmentation, and there's no reason at all why... Uh, why bringing schools back into the local authority and then properly investing in them and then properly supporting teachers within those, within those mm. systems cannot bring about the same results, if not better, than a process of academisation and
2: free schools and fragmentation? Uh, academy schools and free schools do much worse than local authority schools. I think there was a study that came out last week. But also, it's just... Um, if you look at academies and free schools at the moment those academies and free schools have much lower free-school meals um, intake. So it's already forging so like class like, differences. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, and, yeah. and academies can be selective, whereas local authority schools can't. And I think if you do want to kind of flatten class differences and just have a properly comprehensive education system, I'd be perfectly happy to see all grammar schools and private schools abolished. And I don't, think, I don't think private schools should have charitable status. I think if from the very off you say that your child is too precious to mix with like, the ruffians from, around, from the local estate, then that's going to continue for the rest of their life. I think yeah. we have excellent teachers in local authority schools, and I think if you point out that, like, that schooling is something that should be standardised for everybody... Um, I mean, I remember Gordon Brown, uh, I'm not you know, the biggest fan, But he did say one thing, which was that um, he loved his comprehensive school and would always send his children to comprehensive school because that's where you learn about society. That's where you mix with people who don't live on your street. That's where you learn about other cultures and other people who you wouldn't ordinarily go. It flattens society, and academies don't do that. And also the fact that with academies now, um, basically parent governors are thrown out the window. And especially in working-class areas, what you're saying to people is that that parents, working-class parents don't know enough to educate children Mm. and they they can't be trusted with the education of their local community.
4: Hi there. Um, My question is about social mobility. I attended a talk last night by um, Ben Judah, who wrote This Is London, and Rowan Moore, who wrote um, Slowburn City, another book about London. Very interesting talk, and one comment came up about Sadiq Khan, about... Um, well my question is more about social mobility and the current housing crisis um so they made a point about Sadiq Khan whose parents were immigrants from Pakistan they worked hard I guess like a lot of immigrants like them um, they saved some money they managed to buy a house and immediately boom they became middle class and I think that was the case with um, a lot of you know people in this country so my question is with the current housing house you know crisis where you can be middle class you could gone to good schools, have very good jobs, but yet be unable to afford your own house. So how does that square up with, you know, being middle class and house uh, home ownership? Yeah. Has that made this whole thing about social mobility um, more difficult?
3: Well, the thing is that home ownership has become so focused on to an obsessive degree in Britain in the last... I mean you could take it back to Macmillan you know in in the, in in the, the, the mid 50s but but I mean really certainly since since the late uh, since uh, Thatcher since about 1980 or so the idea of home ownership being inextricably linked toward that being inextricably linked with social and economic mobility and being a sort of marker of, of middle classness um, has become such a, a sort of um, a sort of received wisdom in Britain but of course, you know, in in other countries, you know, in, in continental countries, you don't have to be a homeowner in order to be middle class. You know, I mean, in places, you know, like like you know, France and Germany, where sort of eighty, you know, seventy or eighty percent of people are renters. That includes that includes the vast majority of middle class people as well. So you know, kind of social status and income isn't necessarily related to housing tenure. But but what's happened in Britain, of course, is this sort of. Um, Rightification of, of of home ownership, uh, for for want of a better word, you know, has kind of led to people chucking all their money into houses, you know, developing uh, sort of a, a big packet of wealth, uh, you know, that they can't actually use in real life because it's all sitting in their houses. But it, but it's a sort of become a sort of assumed bedrock of 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 middle class uh, stability. And of course, there is going to be a difference if you're sort of um, in a society where you've still got, you know, getting on for 70% home ownership, you know, because the rate of home ownership hasn't gone down that much yet, has it?
2: No, in it's L- London yeah. it has, but everywhere else it's...
3: Everywhere else it hasn't, yeah, exactly. You know, it's only fallen a few percent, really. And so at the moment, you know, it's still the case that, that, that home ownership is still sort of linked with, you know, the, the sort of foundational stability of middle-class life sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, I'd, I'd say also that, that, you know, if you have you know, if you have a stable job uh, in the north of England, then you can still buy a house. And so it's, 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 it's quite a sort of southeast specific thing. But, of course, up north, it, you know, there's a, of, there's a dearth of stable, well-paid jobs mm. as opposed to a dearth of affordable houses. And so the, the housing situation is quite topsy-turvy. You know, you've got loads of well-paying jobs down south, but the prices are ridiculous. But, but up north, you've got cheaper houses... And yet affordability is still a problem
2: because, because you haven't got so many well-paying jobs. Mm. But also, I think, you know, as we've said, like, class isn't just an economic thing. I mean, no. yes. when I think about my friends who are the same age as me who are also struggled with warehouse, A, house. A, yeah. a lot of their parents are willing to put some money forward, but also they have other things that show their middle class, like confidence, right. yeah. a greater kind of cultural capital. Of course, um, yeah, 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 yeah. And often a lot of networks oh, yeah, help them without them even realising it. Weak social ties. Yeah. yeah the importance of weak social ties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so just to close, what's your next book?
3: <gasps> Public Transport. Oh, fantastic. <laughs>
2: uh, thank you all for coming. Lindsay will sign copies of the book which you can buy from this lovely till here. One of yeah. these gentlemen or women will serve you. And Doors' book too. And my book. Yeah. Yes, you can buy them both. There we go. Um, thanks those? for coming, yeah. and good luck. And go. And thank you for coming on such a lovely sunny day. I don't know why you did it. Thank you, Doris.
0: <laughs> thank, you. Yeah. Thank, you, thank, you. thank you,
2: Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.